Luke 3, finishing the chapter today, verses 18 to 38. Spent three weeks of sermons in Luke 3, as we are discerning the ministry of John the Baptist and the transition uh, through his announcement into Jesus. There are a great number of important men in the Bible. We consider men like Abraham, men like Jacob and Samuel and David and Isaiah. Think of Paul and Peter. And yet, as we consider these great men, we, we recognize that there are certain men at certain times in history that literally shake its very fabric. And we're going to consider one such man today. A man that... that We've considered for several weeks already John the Baptist. And as we consider further his ministry, we're going to understand a relationship. We've been speaking for weeks, particularly in the introduction to each of these sermons, about the relationship between John and Jesus. John being the epitome of the Old Testament law. We're going to understand that uh, to to the degree that we we intend to in its fullest today. It has been some time since we read about the announcement and birth of John the Baptist, recorded in Luke 1, announced by the angel Gabriel, as a fulfillment of the prophecy in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, which says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he shall turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. And Gabriel says, This is the one who is coming turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to their fathers. That John would be one who would come called Elijah the prophet. And at the time we remarked that Elijah was one of uh, two men who we might say epitomized the very essence of God's dealings in the Old Testament. Elijah was the quintessential Old Testament prophet. He was the prophet as we think of the entirety of Prophets, Elijah would kind of be their representative, their spokesperson. And as we think about the other man, the representative of the law, we would see Moses. So that Moses being a representative of the law and Elijah being a representative of the prophets would be those two men who would most represent what Jesus Christ would call throughout his ministry, the law and the prophets, the scriptures, the word of God. John is the very essence. He is a representative, the very essence of of Old Testament Scripture. I know I've said this in each introduction. Just bear with me here. This is so important. This is why John's ministry matters at all. Because John is a representative of the Old Testament. And as a representative of the Old Testament, he is 100% aligned with the law. He is 100% aligned with the prophets, with the Old Testament ministry. And yet he was the one that God had chosen to introduce Christ. To usher Christ's ministry in. To baptize him. This is important. This is a lesson. It tells us an essential truth about what God intended the law to be. That God intended the law to point to Christ. That was the purpose of the law. That is the purpose of the law. It's essential not just for that day, but for today. 
that the Jews understood that Messiah was and is the fulfillment of the Old Testament law and prophets. His ministry was going to be very different from what they would expect, but it is 100% in line with, with Old Testament. That the Old Testament, when it prophesied of the one who was to come, that one is this man, Jesus Christ. Today, it's essential for us to understand that Messiah is that Old Testament fulfillment. Apart from the law and the prophets, you, you cannot genuinely understand the full ministry of Messiah. The Old Testament is, we might say, the key that unlocks the New Testament message. It's the dictionary by which we understand the very definition of who Messiah is and what he came to do. And there are many churches and Christians who spend little to no time in the Old Testament. There are even many who believe the Old Testament exists simply to contrast with the New Testament. In other words, the Old Testament exists only to show that that God is not the God that we serve anymore. That's false. God is God. The same God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. His methodology changed, but His character never has. The message has remained the same. And we must understand this. We must cling to this. We must never lose appreciation for what the Old Testament is, what it teaches, and how it serves as the very essence of, the very foundation of that which we need in order to understand the prophecy of Messiah. Recall as well as we jump into the text that there had not been a true prophet in Israel for 450 years. So as we listen today, I encourage you to listen in a little bit of a role-playing manner. Listen to John as the embodiment of the law. Listen to Jesus as the embodiment of the new covenant of grace. By no means the same, but the former exists for the purpose of introducing and preparing for the latter... And Jesus Christ himself comes and submits himself to the baptism of John in order to show that he is coming in complete agreement and alignment with John's message, with the Old Testament law. And so as we jump into the text, we start in verse 18. And the scriptures tell us many other things. And many other things in his exhortation preached he unto the people. We jump a little bit into context here as we consider John the Baptist. John has just given this great exhortation unto various people groups, the people, to the Pharisees, to the soldiers, as to how they can align themselves with God. And he warns them that God is coming in fiery judgment with his fan in his hand to purge his floor and to burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. And we talked about that uh, last week. And, and notice here, as we kind of transition in verse 18, in our King James, it describes his message as an exhortation which he preached to the people. But when you look at the Greek words themselves, that word exhortation literally means to call near, to entreat, and then the word preach is our word evangelize, to tell the good news, to bring good news. It's the same word that will be used all throughout the New Testament to say evangelize, go into the world and preach the gospel. Preach the good news. Never forget that John's message, though he warned of judgment, was yet good news. Though he, he came saying, you need to repent, you need to align, the good news is that if you'll align yourself, Messiah's coming. The good news is that if you'll align yourself, you'll, you'll be on the right side of this judgment. You'll be on the, 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 the safe side of this. You'll be the wheat that is gathered into the barn, not the chaff that is thrown into an unquenchable fire. 
And that's good news. You know, we go out into the world today and there's a lot of controversy about what ought to be brought into the gospel. And and many churches today say, oh, it's supposed to be good news. So we want to bring the good news of the gospel. But can you really give the good news of the gospel without people knowing that they're dead in their trespasses and sins? Can can, can there be any good news if they they don't first know the bad news? It's it's good news, not because that means we're all just kind of Going to heaven, it's all good for everybody. That's not the good news. The good news is that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are on a path to judgment, but that God has done something for you that you cannot do for yourself to divert you from that judgment. If you'll accept it. That's good news for those that are willing. The very function of the law we see here. To highlight man's incapacity. John came saying, you can't do it. The Pharisees, he says, you're a generation of vipers. The the most righteous among them, a generation of vipers. Why? Well, because the law was intended to show us our insufficiency. To show us how far we fall short. To warn us of the judgment that is to come. So that we will seek the solution. So John says... You're sinners. You need to repent. You need to align. You need to submit to this baptism. But I don't, I'm not the Christ. I don't have the solution for you. But there he is. There's, there is the solution. Go to him and get it from him, pointing to Christ. Verses 19 and 20. We get a little historical context here. Scriptures tell us, but Herod the Tetrarch, being reproved by him, that would be John, for Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, and for all the evils which Herod had done, added yet this above all, that he shut up John in prison. Uh, it's here that we must remember that all of these verses are, are verses that are intended to be in summary. In the next couple of verses, we read about the baptism of Jesus, which is accomplished by John himself. And obviously, John was not in prison at the time he baptized Jesus. Luke is succinctly summarizing events here concerning John. So he he's speaking about John's imprisonment, and then he's actually jumping to Jesus' baptism, but in a chronological order, that would be the wrong order. Jesus is baptizing in the wilderness, or John is baptizing in the wilderness. Jesus comes, submits himself to John's baptism, and then later is thrown into prison, is the actual order of events. We would recognize Luke to be, by and large, the chronological gospel. And this does not threaten that because Luke is not attempting here to be chronological. He's attempting to give events. He doesn't focus on John's baptism of Jesus nearly as closely as Matthew does. And and so Jesus' baptism in Luke is actually somewhat of just summary. All of this is summary. Uh, It's not intended to be dogmatic chronology. Matthew as he wrote his gospel, was writing with the direct purpose of reaching the Jewish people and convincing them that Jesus was the Messiah. Herod, we know, was a tetrarch of Galilee. We, we learned this in Luke 3.1. And Luke did not see fit to write the details of this account. They would not really be consistent with Luke's purpose of writing. He was writing to Gentiles. The Gentile world really didn't need to see too much about John's baptism, need to understand too much the relationship between Jesus and John because they had no vested interest in the law. John's purpose was to come to the Jews so that the Jews could understand this transition. The Gentile world had no vested interest in John, in his baptism or in the law. 
And so it wasn't as big of a deal. So Luke didn't make it very, very much of a deal. Matthew, on the other hand, was writing to a Jewish audience to convince them of Jesus' messiahship. The law was essential to that purpose. John the Baptist, the account of John the Baptist would be much more relevant to them. And so in Matthew 14, we see a much more detailed account of Jesus' baptism. In short, however, history tells us that Herod, and we also see a more detailed account of his imprisonment in Matthew 14. Uh, Jesus tells us, excuse me, Matthew 14 is Jesus's, or John's imprisonment. Matthew 3 is um, Jesus' baptism. Uh, but as far as uh, the, the imprisonment is concerned, the point of our context here, history tells us that Herod had divorced his wife in order to marry Herodias, who had been his brother's wife. Now, many Jews were upset by this because here you have a leader of the Jewish people divorcing his wife to, to start an adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. Um, John was a very outspoken opponent of this evil. Now, Herod was not a Jew. He was an Edomite. And yet, uh, he, he, as a leader of the Jewish people in this governmental sense, uh, was under a great amount of pressure by the people. So John speaks up against this evil, and Herod decides to put John in prison. And he wants to kill him, but he's afraid to kill him. Because Herod understands the Old Testament. He understood the Old Testament law. The Edomites had been subjected by the Jewish people during the intertestamental period, the 400 years uh, between Malachi and and when we pick up in the book of Luke, and they had been forced into circumcision. They had been forced to submit themselves to the law of God. And so he understood the law very well. He was resentful against the Jews, as all the Edomites were, but he understood the law, and he knew that John, the people saw John as an Old Testament prophet. So he was afraid to kill John because he was afraid that in doing so, he would have a major, major uprising on his hands. Here we have the first prophet in 400 plus years, saying, thus saith the Lord, and Herod is going, to be, is going to kill him because he doesn't like his message. It's not going to go over well with the Jewish people. So Herod's afraid to kill him. Well, prior to his imprisonment, however, is, is the event which, not heavily considered in Luke, uh, certainly not like it is in Matthew, but this is the baptism of Jesus. We're not going to get into the rest of Herod's account with John today. He eventually does end up killing John. Uh, we'll talk about that more Uh, in the weeks to come. Our message today considers the nature of the law and grace and how the law was used to usher in grace. An important message, uh, far more so in a Jewish context than in a Gentile context, uh, as we've already mentioned. And why consider it today? Because as believers, we raise our children in a moral environment. Most of us do, at least. We have raised our children in a moral environment. And in many ways, as second, third generation Christians, we might liken our situation as a little bit more like the Jews' situation than like the Gentile situation in the first century of the church. As believers raising our children in a moral environment, our problems within the church, as we considered last week, can be far more likened to moralizing and self-righteousness like the Jews, than necessarily idolatrous immorality like a Gentile. Both perspectives are are necessary in order to reach all men. And, And Luke is seeking to convince a Gentile man, a Roman named Theophilus, who is far more likely to be familiar with pagan idolatry. So Luke will spend his time not on the nuances of John the Baptist, but rather on the authority of Jesus Christ. Uh, But we consider, for the sake of understanding this morning, Jesus' baptism more thoroughly. In verses 21 and 22, we read this. Now, when all the people were baptized, 
it came to pass that Jesus also being baptized and praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him, and a voice from heaven which said, came from heaven, excuse me, which said, Thou art my beloved Son, and thee I am well pleased. This is all we get in Luke on the baptism of Jesus. That We, we don't even know who did it. It's, it's not even fully explicitly stated that John the Baptist was the one who baptized Jesus. We simply see that Jesus came into the wilderness. He also had been baptized. The heaven opened. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in the bodily form like a dove. And then a voice came from heaven saying, Thou art my, my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. So we see through Luke's account, the emphasis being Jesus is affirmed. Jesus' ministry is affirmed by God. You have him, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father, the Spirit descending upon him, the voice of God the Father, he, him being there in bodily form, the whole Trinity engaged in this. Jesus is the one with authority. Jesus is God. And Luke moves on. We dig in a little deeper, though, because I think we need this. In Matthew chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, we read this. Then cometh Jesus from Galilee to Jordan unto John to be baptized of him. But John forbade him saying, I have need to be baptized of thee, and comest thou to me? And Jesus, answering, said unto him, Suffer it to be so now, for thus it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he suffered him. Matthew uh, makes very clear the nature of this baptism. Luke tells us that Jesus was baptized. Matthew tells us that he was baptized of John and into John's baptism. Remember what baptism is. Baptism is a visible manifestation of a spiritual association. That's what it is today. That's what it's always been. Which means what? Which means that by being baptized into John, he is fully affirming John's message. And this is important. Jesus comes to John. John doesn't want to baptize him, knowing that his cousin is the Messiah. That he, John, ought rather to be baptized of Jesus. That he ought to be aligning himself with Jesus' message. Why does Jesus have to align himself with John? John's just a man. But Jesus answers to the contrary. He says, suffer it to be so now, for it becometh us to fulfill all righteousness. What's Jesus saying here? What, what, why must Jesus be baptized of John to fulfill all righteousness? Well, we go back to our introductory premise. John is a divine representative of the law preparing the people for and announcing Messiah. And consider the significance that the the messenger of the new covenant submits himself to the representative of the old covenant. By this act, Jesus associates himself with John and so associates himself with the New Testament law, I mean Old Testament law. And we must not miss this. He didn't come saying that the law was bad or wrong, that it needed to go. He didn't come to tear down the system. Jesus wasn't the great rebel. Jesus came aligned with God's law. He came as the, not the the one to tear down the system, but to fulfill the system. To epitomize the system. to, To be the representative of the system. He came to fulfill all righteousness. A righteousness which was expressed in the law, but which you and I could not bear. Which you and I could not attain. We couldn't make it. We couldn't fulfill all righteousness. The law was righteous and holy and good, but we couldn't handle it. Jesus Christ came saying, I came to fulfill that. So I'm going to submit to your baptism because that's 
That's the law. That's what I came to fulfill. That's what I came to do. So he comes out of the water and Luke uh, 3 verse 22 says, And the heaven was opened and the Holy Ghost descended in bodily shape like a dove upon him. And a voice came from heaven which said, Thou art my beloved Son, and thee I am well pleased. One of the few instances in Scripture where all three members of the Trinity manifest themselves simultaneously, showing us once again that Jesus Christ is a part of the Trinity and that the Trinity is three distinct persons in one essence, that is God. The Holy Ghost descends in a bodily shape like a dove. Luke is the only one that mentions the bodily shape. The others say Holy Ghost descended like a dove and we would be tempted to kind of uh, not really know what that means except that Luke says specifically he was a physician. It looked like a dove. The bodily shape of the Holy Spirit was a dove. Jesus is standing there as the divine second person of the Trinity. The voice of the Father sounds from heaven affirming that Jesus is his son. And also affirming that Jesus' action in submitting himself to the baptism of John, associating himself with the law and the prophets, coming in the name of the God of the Old Testament, is 100% pleasing to the Father. Now, not a lot of exposition today. The last 16 verses are genealogy. We are going to read them, however. Look with me beginning in verse 23. And Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age, being, as was supposed, the son of Joseph, which was the son of Heli, which was the son of Mathat, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Melchi, which was the son of Janna, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Mattathias, which was the son of Amos, which was the son of Nahum, which was the son of Esli, which was the son of Nagi, which was the son of Maath, which was the son of Matthias, which was the son of Semei, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Joanna, which was the son of Hresa, which was the son of Zerubbabel, which was the son of Salathiel, which was the son of Neri, which was the son of Melchi, which was the son of Adai, which was the son of Kadsam, which was the son of Elmodam, which was the son of Ur, which was the son of Jose, which was the son of Eliezer, which was the son of Jorim, which was the son of Mathat, which was the son of Levi, which was the son of Simeon, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Joseph, which was the son of Jonan, which was the son of Eliakim, which was the son of Melea, which was the son of Manon, which was the son of Matata, which was the son of Nathan, which was the son of David, which was the son of Jesse, which was the son of Obed, which was the son of Boaz, which was the son of Salmon, which was the son of Neasim, which was the son of Aminadab, which was the son of Aram, which was the son of Esram, which was the son of Perez, which was the son of Judah, which was the son of Jacob, which was the son of Isaac, which was the son of Abraham, which was the son of Thara, which was the son of Nahor, which was the son of Saruk, which was the son of Ragau, which was the son of Phalak, which was the son of Eber, which was the son of Salah, got behind there, I'm sorry, uh, which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Arphaxad, which was the son of Sem, which was the son of Noah, which was the son of Lamech, which was the son of Methuselah, which was the son of Enoch, which was the son of Jared, which was the son of Meleliel, which was the son of Canaan, which was the son of Enos, which was the son of Seth, which was the son of Adam, which was the son of God. Now, typically we skip over genealogies when we read, right? But genealogies are important for many reasons. Sometimes you find little diamonds in the rough in genealogies, particularly as you consider the ones in Chronicles and you consider Matthews. 
there's not a whole lot of diamonds in the rough here, but there are a few things I would like to point out about the genealogies. First, uh, it tells us right in the outset in verse 23 that Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry, when all of this took place. As we have before mentioned, this tells us it has been 18 years since the events of Jesus in the temple. Uh, Age 30 was the age that Jewish priests began their ministry. So it would not necessarily be surprising that God chose to begin Jesus' ministry at age 30. Now, as we walk through the genealogy, it's significant... The significance of this genealogy is more a product of the differences that we see between this one and then a genealogy that we could read in Matthew. I'm not going to read that one for you as well. We won't get that tedious this morning. But the differences are these. In the Matthew genealogy, we see Jesus traced through the bloodline of David and Abraham. The bloodline only goes back to Abraham. Matthew's not interested in tracing him all the way back to Adam. He's only interested in tracing him back to Abraham and tracing him through David. And remember, Matthew was written to a Jewish audience. Luke was written to a Gentile audience, which means David and Abraham is what really mattered to the Jew. The Jew needed to know that this one was the son of David and the son of Abraham because that would mean he's qualified to be Messiah, the, the Old Testament Messiah. So Matthew shows this. Luke, on the other hand, traces him all the way back to Adam. And what would the emphasis of that be? Well, the emphasis is not so much that Jesus is the son of David or the son of Abraham. The emphasis is that Jesus is human. That he can be traced all the way back to to Adam. That he has a lineage of humanity. Because all throughout Luke, we're going to see his authority as God. So Luke starts out and says, don't forget that he's also a man. Don't forget that he is God and man. See, if Jesus was not a man, human, he would have no legal right to pay for your sin. He would have no legal right to undo Adam's sin. The theocratic representative of the human race plunged the human race into sin. And it would take a perfect representative of the human race, of the human race, to call man out of sin. If Adam is not human, then he cannot be our redeemer. I mean, if Jesus is not human, he cannot be the, our redeemer. So Luke traces him back to Adam to prove a point. What point? That Jesus is human. He comes from Adam. And as he is the seed of Adam, he's qualified to redeem us. Paul makes this clear in Romans chapter 12. Verse 12 and then verse 15. Verse 12 says, Wherefore, as by one man sinner entered into the world... And death by sin, so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, many be dead. In other words, we were all plunged into sin through the offense of our father Adam. Much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. One man's sin brought death to the whole human race. One man's righteousness, sacrificial righteousness, is sufficient to secure life for the whole of the human race and applied to as many as would receive him. 
So Luke traces him all the way back to Adam in order to emphasize this very important point that Jesus is a son of Adam and he is positioned to offer himself as a righteous representative of the human race for redemption and for remission of sin. Matthew reveals Jesus to be the son of David and Abraham in order to prove his identity as Messiah. Luke reveals Jesus to be the son of Adam in order to prove his legal capacity to atone for the sins of mankind. Now another interesting to note uh, thing to note about the, the Matthew genealogy. This is not in the Luke genealogy, but since we don't get to talk about genealogies very often, let me just, let me just enjoy this a little bit. Um, in Matthew, there are actually five women listed in that genealogy. As we trace through genealogies, you always trace through the lineage of the man. But in Matthew, there are five women listed. Tamar, who has Perez with Judah, her father-in-law. Rahab, a Canaanitish harlot who helped the spies in Jericho become and, and, and then became the, the great-great-grandmother of David. Ruth, a Moabitess woman who married Boaz and became the great-grandmother of David. Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah who had an adulterous relationship with David through whom came Solomon. And then Mary, the virgin who was highly favored and blessed to carry Jesus, the Son of God. And when one considers this list of women, it's a pretty remarkable list, isn't it? That God would have seen fit under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in the Matthew genealogy, focusing on the Jews, to highlight these five particular women in a genealogy of men. It reminds us particularly not only that that, uh, Jesus is very Jewish in character, but that's not a very righteous lineage, is it? Perez is born of Tamar with Judah, her father-in-law, because Judah had been dishonorable, and then Tamar thus became dishonorable. Rahab was a harlot of Canaan who proselyted into the nation through faith. Ruth was a Moabite who proselyted into the nation through faith. And by the way, as I mentioned, Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of David. Rahab is the great great-grandmother of David. Boaz, who married Ruth, is Rahab's son. Interesting stuff. Bathsheba is mentioned in this genealogy, who, of course, was in the adulterous relationship with David we've considered in 2 Samuel, and then Mary, who's the, 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 the crown jewel of that list of women. Highly favored, and indeed for good reason. It reminds us that Jesus was not from a perfect lineage. You know, if man was writing the Bible and they were trying to bring about a Messiah, he'd have had a perfect lineage, wouldn't he? There would have been a spotless lineage if this was just a man-made book. That's how man thinks. You want a perfect man, you better have a perfect lineage, right? You want a perfect Jesus, you better have a sinless Mary, right? That's what the Catholic Church teaches. You better have a sinless Mary if you're going to have a sinless Jesus. But the lineage isn't perfect. There's a harlot that list. There's a Moabitish woman who, by the way, was cursed by God, that that nation of Moab. They're in that that genealogy. That gives us a little insight. It's perhaps a diamond in the rough of those genealogies that we like to skip over. So Luke's genealogy is extremely straightforward, on the other hand. He mentions nothing but fathers. He traces Jesus back to Adam. The final thing to be mentioned is that neither of these genealogies is extensive. Okay, Neither one covers every single generation. 
They're not exhaustive. They're, they're summary. They're, they're sufficient to prove Jesus' lineage, but they don't actually hit every single generation, every single name. And today, uh, we have seen the merging of these two concepts. We've seen the law and the prophets exemplified through John the Baptist. We've seen the new covenant exemplified through Jesus. We've seen them come together through this baptism. We've seen the history that proves that Jesus is indeed a man. We're going to apply this morning. And as we do so, I'd like us to kind of take all of this and put it together. These concepts aren't going to be startling or new. As a matter of fact, they come up quite regularly recently because of the nature of our teaching and where we've been with John the Baptist. But let's talk about it together. Our first point, just remember that the New Testament believer is not under the law. I make this point not because it is in the text, but as we speak of the relationship between the law and grace, it, it's, it's important to speak of just for clarity. I've preached extensively on this point. It was, it was all over the place in my Galatians series. I'm not going to prove it at length. It takes at least the content, content of a full sermon to prove it at length. But consider the words of Paul in Galatians chapter 3, which tells us this, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that, I should, that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit? Are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain, if it be yet in vain? He therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Paul is insistent within these verses, not only that a person cannot be saved by the law, but also that a believer cannot and indeed need not be sustained by the law. And this is important. As second and third generation Christians, for some of us, we can start to fall into this temptation of feeling as though if we're not doing certain things, that we are falling short. That that though we have been saved by grace, that we have been uh, brought into the the family of God through the Spirit of God, but then after the Spirit of God has made us a child of God, now it's up to us. That now we have this checklist, that now we have a bunch of stuff that we have to do or not do in order to measure up. And Paul says it's foolish to think that if you have been, that if you have been brought into the church, that, that if, if you have received the Spirit unto salvation, that then now you are made perfect by the flesh. That now somehow that you have the Spirit, you can conjure up the ability to do right on your own. We do not serve the law. Our perfection is not found in keeping the law. Our perfection is in Christ, rooted in submission to the Spirit in the same manner that salvation is rooted in submission to the Spirit. The law operated under a system of guilt, whereby a man's service to God was designed either to keep him free from guilt or or to cleanse him from that guilt. So the law operated so that if I did what was right, if I did what the law said, I would not be under guilt Or if I did fall under the guilt of my sin, then I could go through the law, cleanse that guilt by sacrifices. The Spirit operates under a system of grace, whereby a man's service to God is motivated by love, because he is free from guilt, and is forever cleansed already. Do you see the difference? The law makes you guilty, says this is what you can do to not be guilty. When you are guilty, this is what you can do to cover that guilt grace. You are not guilty. You are free from guilt. So love God and serve Him. 
Now, I make that point quickly. It's not my object today, but it's so important, especially for second, third generation Christians. You serve God out of love, not out of guilt. If you feel, if you are compelled to serve God out of guilt, there's something wrong in your spirit. There's something wrong there. We, we serve him because we love him. We don't serve him because we're afraid or guilty or, or need to measure up. Christ has already measured up for us. And that's every reason to serve him, right? Every reason. Now, we sang this morning, Jesus paid it all. The natural phrase, that phrase after that, and it is a natural step, all to him I owe. That's not saying I, I owe him to work up to his gift. It's he's done so much for me. How could I do anything less but my best for him? That, that's the concept. That's the Christian life. Don't be driven by guilt. Don't be driven by guilt to serve God. That's not the way God designed you to live. He did not design you to live constantly guilty, constantly feeling like you don't measure up, constantly wondering, uh, angry at yourself. Christ has borne that. You're free from that. And yet that should make you want to serve Him. Second point. The law and the prophets form the backdrop for the gospel. I mentioned in our introduction that there is a group in the church today that have no regard for the Old Testament. They teach it as a relic of a different time, which serves to stand only to contrast with the God of the New Testament. They see no value in the Old Testament apart from stories and wise teachings. They paint the God of the Old Testament as a God of anger and of judgment and the state of the God of the New Testament to be different. A God who accepts all people. A God whose main attribute is love rather than holiness. And really nothing could be further from the truth. In our passage today, we see John the Baptist, the prototypical typical prophet, the essence and the embodiment of the law, and Jesus Christ submits himself to that baptism. The law, folks, is not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. And the God of the law is the same God that you serve today. Romans 7, 7, we read this. Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust, except the law had said, thou shalt not covet. The law is not wrong. It's the divine means of showing men God's character. It was God's divine means of making it clear that man needed a redeemer. That even when he had an explicit checklist of do's and don'ts from the very mouth of God, that the people of God would not obey. And Paul would go on to say in verses 12 and 13 of Romans 7, Wherefore, the law is holy, and the commandment holy, and just, and good. Was then that which is good made death unto me, Paul asks? God forbid, but sin, that it might appear sin, worketh death in me by that which is good that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Now, as a side note, the Bible says the law is a reflection of a holy God. This reminds us that we cannot just cast off the law as a relic of another age. It reminds us that contained in the law is still the essence of God's character. It reminds us on the level of principle, if God hated something in the law, he hasn't stopped hating it. And what I mean by this, on the level of principle, if God hated it in the Old Testament, God still hates it. Many of the laws in the Old Testament were outworking of divine principles. 
those divine principles are still in play today. God hates confusion. He says that in the law. He hates confusion. He hated it then. He hates it now. God hates a false balance. God, God would not allow the mixing of fabrics in Old Testament law. Now, can we mix fabrics today? Yes, we're not under the law. But is the principle of mixing two things that are incompatible, is, is that still in effect? Yes. False weights and balances. There were certain elements of, of a false weight and a false balance that God hated under the law. Now, we're not going to stone people for false weights and balances today. But is the principle of God's nature in regard to false weights and balances still in effect? Well, it's still his nature. He still hates a false balance. He still hates confusion. He still hates untruth. God wanted truth. God wanted honesty. God wanted integrity in the law. Now, we're not going to stone people if they don't live up to certain standards today because we're not under the law. We don't live under that standard. But it doesn't change the fact that the law was reflecting some principles about the character of God, and God is unchanging. The law is just. The law is good. But that which is good was made death to me. Because the sin that is inscribed on the very essence of my being, the rebellion which is baked into the very core of what I am, will not and indeed cannot keep God's holy standard. And that's the point, right? That's why the law exists. That's why it existed. To teach me who God is, his character, to teach me what he expects, and to show me that I can't measure up to what he expects. So the law is a teacher. And if that sounds familiar, it's because that's exactly what the Bible says the law is. Galatians chapter 3, back where we were before, verses 21 to 26. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for if there had not been a law given which could have given, or for if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise of faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto faith, which should afterward be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster, teacher, to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster, for ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. The law is not in existence to usurp grace, to compete with grace, to confuse us of grace. It's there to point us to grace. It's our schoolmaster. In a right society, a teacher is a means to an end, right? A good teacher works himself out of usefulness with the end of his teaching being achieved. In other words, I teach you until you are capable and then you go teach others. I work myself out of a job with my pupils there's always another generation to come. But that pupil, I'm not successful unless that pupil is as knowledgeable as I am. A math teacher is no longer necessary once his pupil understands mathematics. At that point, the pupil becomes another master and begins to use his skills to teach others. A mechanics teacher is no longer necessary once his pupil understands mechanics. At that point, the pupil becomes a master and begins to use his skills and takes on other, other pupils. And the law is no longer necessary once the fulfillment of the law comes. At this point, the law has prepared a man's heart for fulfillment. And men naturally transition from being taught to the fullest realizations of that teaching. Christ is the fullest realization of the law. He has fulfilled it so that we could live in that fulfillment. And this leads us to our final point. 
the law, excuse me, it's not our final point. We have one more after this. The law is fulfilled in Christ, not abolished in Christ. What you are witnessing in Luke 3 is John the Baptist baptizes Jesus is the official passing of the torch. It is the declaration that the greater than John has come. That the presence of this one who has come, the, the former man John, was, was not even worthy of, of latching the shoes of this one who has come. And remember our allegory here, that John is the law and the prophets, that Jesus is the new covenant of grace. Jesus says, I have come to fulfill all righteousness. He would say in Matthew five seventeen and 18, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. The entirety of the Old Testament speaks of Christ. Christ is the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's heel in Genesis 3.15. He's the ark that saved Noah and his family from judgment in Genesis 7.1. He's the rock which followed the nation of Israel and gave them to drink in Exodus 17.6. He is the brazen serpent which if a man looked upon him, he would be healed in Numbers 21. He is the seed of David that would perpetually sit upon his throne in 2 Samuel 7. He is the center point of every promise of is- to Israel. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53. The righteous branch of Jeremiah 23. The good shepherd of Ezekiel 34. Jesus walked along the road to Emmaus with two men and beginning at Moses and the prophets, he expounded unto them all the scriptures concerning himself, the Old Testament. Jesus told the Pharisees while upon the earth in John 5 verse 39, search the scriptures for in them ye think ye have eternal life and they are they which testify of me. The Old Testament exists to show us Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. And the prophets. Jesus came to enable us to do everything that the law demanded and then gives us the capacity through his spirit. And when we read of the ministry of Christ in Romans chapter 8 verses 1 through 4, which says this, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. It's not that the law was weak, it's that we were weak. God, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. Christ came to fulfill the law in you. Not to put you under guilt so that you'd have to discipline yourself into measuring up to some standard. He came at the approval of the law. He lived out the very essence of the law's expectations. He died the death demanded by the law, having never broken the law. And in doing so, his death for breaking the law was legally able to atone for your sin in breaking God's law. And likewise... His righteous fulfillment of the law is able to be imputed on all who will receive it. This is the essence of justification. And so the righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us as we are baptized into the Holy Ghost, as we talked about last week, buried with Him by baptism into death, raised to walk in the newness of life, not the physical baptism, but the spiritual baptism, having fulfilled in Christ all the righteousnesses of the law by dying to sin, by dying to the flesh, and arising unto the Spirit. 
No more guilt. No more condemnation. Those are the ugly remnants of a system which has long been fulfilled in Christ. So that we now live in abundant grace and we serve Him in love. Conviction is a good thing. Conviction is when you're doing wrong and the Holy Spirit is telling you you're doing wrong and you need to do right. You submit yourself to the Spirit of God, you start doing right. Guilt is a bad thing. Guilt is when I feel as though I'm not measuring up and I try to work out in myself the ability to measure up to God. One final point as we close. Just like our first point, it's not really from the text, but another reminder. The message of grace, of freedom from the law, is a dangerous message because if we learn that we are no longer under the threat of punishment, the humanity in us is tempted to just kind of skate by. To tell a person who still has a sin nature that they are not under the threat of divine punishment for their sin is effectively a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? It abolishes the primary motivation that any man has to do something right, which is the fear of consequences. And indeed, we recognize still that choices have consequences. We recognize still that sin works death. And that when we sin, while every sin is under the blood of Christ, the natural consequences of those sins upon ourselves and others can still be dramatic. But the final point, anytime we consider grace in the law, is just a reminder, never forget, grace is not license. Grace is not license. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Paul then devotes the entire chapter of Romans 6 to telling you why grace is not license. I'll not teach it today. Indeed, I do not have time. But we need to remember this. As we've talked about, grace is ought to be a prime motivation to serve God, not a license to ignore His Word. Grace ought to compel us to align ourselves with His Spirit and thereby with His Word. It ought not compel us to ignore His Word simply because we know that we're on our way to heaven. Indeed, if you are walking right with God, love will compel you to the very deepest sensibilities of obedience to His Word. If the point yet concerns you, I'm not going to sit on it this morning for long, but if the point yet concerns you, I encourage you to go read Romans 6, to allow the Holy Spirit to teach you, to come to me, ask questions. If I may sum it up, never forget, grace is not license. The best way I can sum it up is simply found in, in a verse which was a statement of Jesus Christ while he was yet on this earth to his disciples. He said this in John 14:15. If ye love me, Keep my commandments. And that's it. Not if you fear me. Not so you can work your way into salvation. If you love me. And we have every reason to love him. Keep his commandments. 